Alright, hello. It's Dermot here. Welcome back to Rupture Radio. So, Americans are set to go to the polls on Tuesday the 3rd of November to elect a new US president. On offer is the incumbent Donald Trump and the Democratic nominee Joe Biden. There are many issues to take with both candidates, which are discussed later in this episode, but Trump's erratic nature and more overtly reactionary outlook has led some to argue that Joe Biden would be a far better pick. In line with this, many have called on socialists and the left in America to row in uncritically behind Biden. While there's undoubtedly massive issues with this, this also raises the question of how socialists should react to this call, and more importantly, how the election affects the need to build a socialist movement independent of both the Democratic and Republican parties. The possibility has also been raised that should he lose, Trump may seek to resist the results of the election, and this raises a further question of how socialists can mobilise around the issue and connect with people's genuine fears in relation to this. In order to discuss these topics, I'm going to be joined very shortly by Ty Moore and Manya Lin of Reform and Revolution, a Marxist caucus within the DSA. Both are socialist activists based in Seattle, and I'll leave a link to Reform and Revolution's website and magazine in the episode description. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank our listeners for supporting us up to this point. I would also like to plug our Patreon link, which is in the episode description. Every little bit of support is majorly appreciated and ensures that we can continue doing this well into the future. Alright, so I'll kick us off with Manya and Ty. All right. Hello and welcome for joining me, Manya. Thanks for having us. No problem. And welcome for joining me, Ty. Glad to be here. Great to have you. Before uh, getting into the kind of election forecasting, you both might let me know where you're coming from and also a bit about your organization, Reform and Revolution, and how that operates within the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, my name is Manya. Um, I am calling in from Seattle, Washington uh, in the U.S. And yeah, Ty and I are part of, uh, we're part of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the U.S. right now. And uh, within the DSA, we are, are part of a, a caucus called Reform and Revolution. We are a, uh, a revolutionary socialist caucus. Uh, we come out of the revolutionary socialist tradition. Our caucus, we want to see DSA turn into a mass socialist party um, in the U.S., rooted in the multiracial working class. Uh, we organize uh, to do that in DSA. Um, we have um, members sort of all over the all over the country, but our our, our big base is here in Seattle. Fantastic. Do you want to add anything, Ty? I think you covered most of it, but yeah, I think you know it's really exciting how DSA has grown over the last few years and fits and starts. But you know, right now there we're in the midst of a recruitment drive, coordinated, really the first sort of coordinated recruitment drive throughout the whole national organization, with the aim of reaching a hundred thousand members by the end of the year. It's not clear if we'll do that, but um, it's clear that a lot of folks are joining up with DSA. And it's if it reached 100,000, um, it would be basically tied with the Communist Party, I think, um, and the Socialist Party as, you know, uh, uh, one of the four or three largest uh, socialist formations in U.S. history. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, it's been really encouraging seeing the growth over the the like last year. And even if it doesn't reach the, the 100,000 mark by the end of the year, the set target, it's still obviously extremely encouraging in, ta- in terms of like growth. Um, but was that a, that 
like drive for recruitment was that coordinated with the election cycle or was this always within the plan of the SA? I think it was consciously developed as part of the election cycle with an understanding that you know this would be a moment of tremendous politicization and you know I'm sure we'll get into it but you know without uh, a clear candidate in the race uh, anybody standing anything close to uh, the principles that DSA has fought for um, after after Bernie Sanders was defeated in the primaries, I think this was seen as a uh, a way to intervene in the politicized moment um, with a clear socialist banner and try and build DSA. No matter what the outcome of the election, you know the need to build an organized socialist base uh, is crucial. Yeah, absolutely. As mentioned, the U.S. election is set to be held on Tuesday, November 3rd, and sees voters set to choose between the Republican Party incumbent, Donald Trump, and the Democratic Party nominee, Joe Biden. What do both of these candidates represent under current conditions? Well, I guess I'll um, talk about what Trump represents, and maybe this will be pretty familiar. The easy to... one first. <laughs> uh, Manya can take the harder question on what exactly they represent, but I mean, I think probably most of your listeners will know. You know, Trump represents you know the worst elements of of racism, xenophobia. He's a billionaire that pretends to be a populist, and has you know has really used the presidency to enrich himself, to enrich his family, to protect and promote his friends and, you know, push forward a very right wing um, uh, agenda. But I think, you know, a little bit of the deeper question, what does Trump represent, you know, in terms of this stage of global capitalism? We have to see him, of course, as, you know, maybe the most prominent example, but nonetheless, one example among a whole host of right populists from Bolsonaro, in uh, Brazil, to uh, Boris Johnson in Britain, um, and many more. And I think it represents the crisis of neoliberalism, the impasse that the ruling classes internationally have reached um, with growing anger and dissatisfaction of the inequality um, and lack of progress working class people face, um, environmental crisis, all the rest, and a section of the ruling class who wants to turn toward more protectionist um, uh, xenophobic measures. We've seen a reverse of the globalization process. And so, you know, Trump's uh, standoff with China, which has been, you know, framed in very racist, nationalist uh, language by him, mm -hmm. also does represent a wing of the ruling class in the U.S. looking for a way out of their, uh, you know, relative decline in relation to China and, and other capitalist powers worldwide. So it's a debate in the ruling class, I think, that is taking place right now and that Trump, you know, represents you know, one wing of the most virulent, um, nasty, aggressive wing, uh, but nonetheless a real uh, feature of, of the capitalist class at this stage. Yeah, spot on. And um, that leaves us with uh, Joe Biden. So Joe Biden has been posed as the antidote to Trump in many ways, mm -hmm. but this might not be the case if you scratch a bit deeper on the surface. Uh, what what does Joe Biden represent in these in, in this time? I think Ty just sort of alluded to it that you know Trump is representing this one really racist reactionary wing of the of the capitalist class, and then I think Biden represents a different wing of the of the capitalist class, a real a real hope um, for for a lot of uh, U.S. capitalists that the neoliberal phase of capitalism can um, sort of return to prominence in the U.S. 
the eight years of sort of um, U.S. capitalist stability under Obama can return. And obviously that means continued increased profits for, uh, for businesses and for capitalists here in the U.S., but also just like an increase of, of inequality, of worsening um, both economic and societal conditions for, for working class people here in the U.S., just sort of the, you know, the, the neoliberal uh, phase of capitalism that we've seen for the past 40 years. It's really clear that Biden is backed by a lot of billionaires. He's actually backed by more billionaires or, than Trump. The more billionaires have donated to his campaign. Wall Street has donated more to his campaign than they've donated to Trump's campaign. And I think sort of the reason for that, besides what I just outlined, is, is that they see Biden as the sort of stable candidate, that he's going to be a real stable force for U.S. capitalism. You know, Trump is is really erratic and and also like has handled the COVID-19 crisis like absolutely dismally. And yeah, they sort of want this this return to sort of capitalist stability and the the longevity of their of their system that works so well for them and so poorly for everyone else in the U.S. I think that's like that's sort of the over, overarching uh, force for Biden. There are I would say like, and I think we'll get into this, like real contradictions in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party base uh, of voters is is much more, swings much more left um, than, than, you know, sort of like the, the, the corporate nature of the Democratic Party. Yeah. But without a, like a real alternative, um, sort of the capitalist interest that Biden is representing is able to just really like have just to, to, to be the Democratic Party at a, at a debate recently, Biden said, I am the Democratic Party, which <laughs> I think is really, is really true right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, his candidacy and, and also like the Biden individually, like the politician he, he's been for, for his whole career has, you know, he's been and he still is really pro-war. He's helped crafted a lot of the crime bills and like mass incarceration that we see. He's uh, as a neoliberal politician. He's for a lot of privatization um, and for for some deregulate uh, deregulation. And also is you know it very clearly is not willing to take any drastic action on climate change. You know he came out recently yeah. and and so did Kamala Harris saying that they they won't ban fracking, for example. Yeah, it was an insane tweet that they came out clarifying that no, we won't be banning fracking. As if that was something to be bragging about in this like current time i think uh what you touched on is spot on you like i consider biden a more conventional uh like neoliberal candidate um and i think that they've been effectively able to counterpose that to trump's more erratic like more erratic form uh but given the nature of, of where we're at at the moment and also what these candidates represent what have you made so far of the campaign and, and how it's unwinded and also like just the election process so far and the what both candidates and their parties are offering to voters. I think Biden is really trying to talk about it like a return to normalcy. The COVID-19 crisis has made the campaigns completely different than like what they what they would happen otherwise. Um, I think it's made a Biden a Biden win much more likely. You know, we've had mm -hmm. over 200 and I think the count right now is 229,000 people um, have died in the U.S. And it's probably more from uncounted deaths from COVID-19. Biden is really trying to offer this um, alternative for handling uh, the COVID crisis. In terms of just the, the campaigns, I think some of the, uh, at least for the for Biden's campaign, one of the one of the big things 
that I've noticed and that like I think a lot of people on the socialist left and this particularly socialist feminists um, have been commenting on is the decimation of the Me Too movement over the Biden campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in, I think it was March, Tara Reid, who used to work in Biden's office, came forward allegations, very credible allegations of sexual assault by Biden and has been completely smeared mm-hmm. and silenced and dismissed by the Democrats, just like some really vile smear campaigns against her. She's lost her housing, can't get can't get work because of this. And I think the real like political impact is is this decimation of the Me Too movement, which was, you know, a worldwide movement, but also like a really incredible uprising in the, you know, mostly online, but still like this really in- incredible like shift of public opinion with real impacts on powerful men getting, you know, getting their comeuppance in starting in 2018 and the Democrats have just, yeah, they've, they've decimated that movement. And I think that's just been really awful to see some of the other things about the election, obviously like the elections are happening alongside the black lives matter movement in the U S which has been huge over the summer. Um, starting with the killing of George Floyd in in late May. And Biden has, you know, at the Democratic National Convention, they they tried to make a lot of overtures to the movement, say a lot of, you know, like a lot of nice things, have some like representation. Biden has, you know, come out very clearly, like not supporting any of the main demands that are coming out of the movement, Mm -hmm. which would be to defund the police and reinvest in in black and brown communities. And also, like I said, has this, this long history of being really, pushing towards mass incarceration in ways that have completely devastated Black communities in the U.S. And then he picked uh, Kamala Harris as his running mate, who is a Black woman and also a prosecutor who's joked about sending parents of kids who skip school to to jail. They're clearly not on the side of the movement. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, but I think both have storied uh, past in that area, like quite bad uh, activity in the past, but just in terms of the... um, in terms of the Me Too movement, I think like the comparison of the Democrats' attitude towards that uh, during the uh, like Kavanaugh like discussion around Kavanaugh, and then the subsequent discussion around Biden kind of exposed how hypocritical the stance was, and I think really just took the energy out of the movement, as man you said. Uh, Ty, do you want to come in on on that? Well, yeah, just to add on, it's I mean, if you step back, it's been really an incredible uh, uh, campaign over the course of the last uh, 12 months or more. Um, you saw on the one hand, you know, the rise of Bernie Sanders with a serious prospect of him mm-hmm. potentially winning, um, but the consolidation of the Democratic establishment and a media hysteria, you know, saying, well, Bernie can't beat Trump. Um, and, you know, the mass sort of an authentic fear of Trump um, coming to sort of fuse with the uh, corporate agenda of the Democratic Party leadership to coalesce around Biden, who, you know, was really a stagnant uh, campaign throughout most of the primary, who a lot of people, you know, saw sort of the the front runner by default, given that he was a VP, but, Mm -hmm. you know, There was a search, including amongst much of the establishment, can we find another standard bearer, a younger, more representative, uh, more inspiring politician? And they just ended up with, you know, uh, Biden as sort of the default, but he inspired nobody. Um, and his entire campaign has been based on, you know, as Manya uh, outlined, just a return to normalcy um, and basically resting on the anger and hatred against Trump. And, and that is, of course, I think the 
central story of the 2020 U.S. election is it's a referendum on Trump um, and Biden mm -hmm. is sort of a stand-in character uh, in that context. And Trump, of course, is absolutely enraged a huge section of um, of working class people, of oppressed people, um, of certainly major sections of the, of the middle class, mm. um, and it's kind of deepened the red-blue, so-called red-blue divide in this country, often rural versus urban. Um, all that has, has dramatically deepened under Trump, his, his appeals to, you know, far-right organizations, um, his, you know, open um, antagonism toward uh, the BLM mass protests, his open embrace of the most reactionary elements in law enforcement, all of that has served to dramatically polarize. And as you, as you said, all this is against the background of this pandemic. And, you know, as Manya emphasized, um, Trump's handling of it has been absolutely disastrous. And it's not just disastrous from the point of view of working class people, though that's, you know, the first point to emphasize that the, the, the huge death, the total lack of coordination, um, the, the failure of the for-profit healthcare system to uh, coordinate in any meaningful way. Um, all of these things are, are, you know, at the forefront. But even from the point of view of U.S. capitalism, um, you know, already suffered the economic consequences of the first shutdown. And now because of the lack of coordinated response, the lack of contact tracing, lack of mm -hmm. mask usage uh, that Trump has clearly been on the wrong side of, um, the lack of any coherent public health response, uh, we're heading into a situation where big sections of the country are going to need to be shut down again, where schools are starting and but being forced to close again. And even from the point of view of U.S. capitalism, that is an absolute uh, disaster. And so I think we're seeing this, you know, um, the polls tilting more heavily toward uh, Biden, um, as Manya pointed out, a larger portion of the ruling class, Wall Street in particular, tilting heavily toward Biden, um, which is not Wall Street traditionally has been more Republican. So all of that, I think, points toward um, a likely Trump defeat. We can't be sure. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of incredible. Without the virus, uh, without the pandemic, it's not clear um, if Biden and the Democrats would be able to pull it off, given you know that Trump's, despite all of these things, has uh, maintained a certain base with his uh, populist, um, you know, so-called anti-establishment message. Yeah, which is astounding because Biden was posed as the safe pick all along. And looking at the polling numbers now, although Biden is beating Trump by a considerable margin, or in some states anyway, um, you have to consider that the pandemic or the mishandling of it played a major role in that, in kind of breaking people's perceptions or illusions in, in Trump. It was mentioned earlier that we obviously take issue with uh, the kind of big business hawkish or reactionary nature of both candidates. But given the distaste which people have for Trump in particular and his erratic nature, many have argued that socialists and the left as a whole should row in uncritically behind Biden. What do you make of this and how have you kind of maneuvered this minefield when discussing the election with people? I think it's been really disappointing to see a lot of really prominent left leaders, either many of whom are associated with DSA, sort of row uncritically behind Biden um, because it is so important that Trump gets defeated, right? But that we have like Bernie Sanders, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
um, and other like DSA elected officials. AOC is a member of DSA, Bernie is, Bernie is not. DSA are sort of left Democrat um, officials coming in and uh, endorsing Biden, but then not being critical. And there's this huge pressure from the Democratic establishment, from all these forces in society to, you know, to not say anything bad about, about Biden, to like not even, for example, to not even mention, you know, allegations by Tara Reid, mm-hmm. not even to mention like, of course, all of his like really um, terrible neoliberal policies. And there's, yeah, there's this real pressure to to stay mute on any criticism because we have to, we have to get rid of Trump. And I think that's a huge problem. Then there is also in I think like really looking at what's happening in DSA is really interesting, right? Like we're still really small, 70,000 members, you know, we're, we are just 75,000. Yes. <laughs> Our recruitment drive is paid off. <laughs> we're still the largest socialist organization and, and we're an organized force, but you know, we're, we're really, we're a young organization, a relatively young organization too. And DSA's leadership, the national political committee, we've taken an, uh, a real abstentionist uh, view towards the election. So in 2019, at our at DSA's August convention a year ago, there was a resolution that was really good that was passed that was a Bernie or bus resolution. So it said that, you know, DSA would endorse Bernie and no other Democrat in the in the Democratic primary and the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, we Obviously, we endorsed Bernie. And then when Bernie dropped out, right, it sort of just left this open question of what do you what do you tell people? Who do you vote for? And how do we tell our members how to vote also? Like a real concrete question that People are asking, and and I think as an organized socialist force, we do need to be giving a political lead to do this and, and give an answer to this question. Because you know, the our leadership in DSA has just followed this resolution um, and said, you know, look, we give no political support to Biden. We we do not endorse Biden. It's really important that you know that we defeat Trump. But what's more important is you know building movements and you know all of the different organizing that our chapters are doing around the country. Uh, and, you know, on the streets and workplaces, tenant organizing, all these other things, which are incredibly important. And as socialists, we need to be, we need to be doing, there still is this concrete question of millions of working class people in this election. Like this is how people are engaging and, and we need to be giving a lead. So there've been like, I think some interesting like debates in DSA, our caucus in DSA, Reform and Revolution, we have put forward our, our position on, on what we, on what how we should tell people to vote, not an endorsement, but it is giving a sort of like a concrete answer to this question. And our position is that we um, should tell people to vote for Howie Hawkins, who is the Green Party candidate in safe states. Mm-hmm. So states that are very likely um, to go um, either one way or the other. And then we're mostly in states that are, are like very democratic and, and most likely to go to Biden. Um, there's a very, very little chance of those of those being tossed. Uh, toss up in the air, uh, voting for Biden in in swing states. So those are battleground states. I, I'm not sure how familiar your, listener, your listeners are with like how elections, how the presidential election is decided in the U.S. It's an antiquated system that's a leftover from uh, from slavery. But we don't vote based on popular vote. Mm-hmm. In 2016, actually, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million, but did not win the presidency. We vote by something called the Electoral College, which is, it's state-based. And so each state gets a certain number of votes and and that's that's how it's decided. And yeah, this it gives more weight to um, more like white and rural areas in the US. But given that that's how our current presidential elections work, we can sort of like, we can take this, this sort of like 
different stance and, and looking at like swing states versus safe states. So uh, yeah, so that's our, our strategy to be really conscious of and aware of the real fear that people have of Trump winning and the real need to defeat Trump it is different for socialists organizing under a, a Trump presidency versus a Biden presidency. Uh, we would much prefer to organize under a Biden presidency. It makes a real difference for the working class. And so, you know, tapping into that and, and in those states where it could be really close, having people vote for Biden but giving absolutely no political support to Biden. It's not an endorsement. And to make that really concrete, to yeah. register our protest with the Democratic Party, we do not support the Democratic Party. And we think that, you know, socialists should, should really stake out independent political positions. And we need to break from the Democratic Party. And to do that by calling for a, a protest vote for Howie Hawkins, who is the, the strongest socialist candidate on the Green Party line, um, without wanting to build the Green Party. I think, you know, I know the Green Party in Ireland plays quite <laughs> a different role than uh, the Green Party in the U.S., which has always been a very, very marginal uh, force um, and has at times, you know, Howie Hawkins himself is also a member of the Socialist Party, which is, you know, the party of Eugene Debs, but today is a much, much, much more marginal force and unfortunately mm -hmm. not really joined up with DSA, a much larger force. But, you know, he considers himself a socialist, so as Manya said, Howie Hawkins, you know, really represents the the strongest socialist vote, but not to exaggerate it, he's likely to get less than 1% total. Um, so it's more, you know, it's symbolic. It's saying we refuse to be, um, to simply uh, fall into the choice of, you know, either Trump representing the most right-wing elements of the capitalist class, who clearly we don't want to win, or um, rallying behind uh, Biden, who, represents, you know, a centrist, but thoroughly capitalist uh, position. And it has been really, I think the US left because of the um, stability of US capitalism, the two party system in this country has really, you know, um, established itself in a deep institutional way and in, in the whole legal, constitutional and um, political framework. Um, and it's been extremely challenging to build a working class left political alternative. The U.S. is, you know, the only advanced capitalist country in the world that, you know, in the post-war period or, or earlier never established a major national party um, of the unions of the working class, um, no major socialist party. So, um, you know, we have a challenge in front of us and the U.S. left is traditionally sort of, I think, fallen into one of two very simplistic positions. One, just you know, a, you know, we will never ever touch the Democratic Party with a 10 foot pole. Um, and that's left some even, I think, with the ridiculous position of refusing to support um, Bernie Sanders campaign, um, or figures like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or other, you know, socialist, social democratic socialists, but, but people who really represent um, working class aspirations have no points of support in the ruling class. Um, but some on the socialist left have adopted a very skeptical attitude. And then on the other side, um, sections of the more reformist socialist left, traditionally DSA would fall firmly into this category, um, just, you know, uh, eschewing any independent alternative, you know, not even aspiring to the idea of building a working class alternative, but instead simply um, saying, well, we need to reclaim the Democratic Party. So, you know, I put reclaim in, in scare quotes because it's not like the working class ever, you know, had its own party. Um, and the Democrats certainly have consistently been, they weren't a party of the slaveholders in their first 
hundred years and they were the party of um, the capitalist class um, um, uh, and over the last, uh, most of the last century. So I guess where I'm going is, I think you know, what's required in this political moment, what Manya outlined is a recognition that for the time being, the vast majority of working class and even socialist forces that are trying to engage in the political arena um, through Bernie's 2016 and 2020 campaigns are doing so using the Democratic Party ballot line. But what's interesting and exciting is that in DSA, which traditionally was really an appendage of the Democratic Party, the situation has actually been quite transformed. The 2019 vote that Manya mentioned at the DSA convention, um, which was right after its massive growth spurt, um, uh, agreed to the Bernie or bus position saying we will not endorse any Democrat uh, in the presidential elections other than Bernie. And they also, um, for the first time, embraced what they called the dirty break strategy, which was basically an aspiration that DSA stands for the formation of a workers party in the US and, uh, and is working toward that goal. That is a fundamental break with the his whole history of DSA's tradition and represents sort of the radical youth that has uh, swarmed into it and totally transformed it over the last few years. And it represents a real growth and step forward for the US left. Um, at the same time, you know, we face this complicated situation where I think it is undoubtedly better for the US working class if Biden um, wins than if Trump does. Um, that's not because Biden will lift us a finger or do an ounce of anything um, in favor of working class people. He is through, through and through a pro-capitalist politician um, and his entire uh, long career attests to that as, as I thought Manya quite clearly outlined. But um, I think Trump does represent you know, a uniquely um, nasty threat whipping up far right elements, um, uh, quite openly uh, trying to steal the election, take away voting rights, um, a whole series of other things and the terrain that we will be organizing on under a Trump presidency versus a Biden presidency is quite different. And that's reflected, I think most working class people, you know, understand that. And there's, you know, we're not, we should, so, you know, stand in solidarity with them. So in the same way that I think Marxists correctly called for a vote for, uh, against Bolsonaro um, uh, in, in Brazil, I think the correct position for Marxists today is to say, we, um, uh, stand for Trump's defeat. And that means, at least in the swing states, in the battleground states, uh, we support a vote for Biden. Um, but we do that uh, combined with saying in other states we should vote for Howie Hawkins and using that as a tool to really say, look, DSA needs to not just get swept up into their old mold of being an appendage of the Democratic Party, uncritically supporting Democratic Party candidates, um, but uh, to move forward after this election toward the goal of an independent working class party and taking every opportunity possible to, to advance that goal. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. And I think people who are kind of outside or, or looking in sometimes underestimate the like influence that the two party system can have on the working class or on people uh, in general and how socialists can connect with that. Um, but I am just going to push back on a few things just to tease it out more than anything else um you, you like i was going to ask um 
why you thought that by the Biden presidency would offer more a more favorable terrain for socialists and the working class to operate on. But I think that's been answered. Just what would you make of the like counter argument that Biden or like a Biden presidency is likely to be just as hawkish, uh, maybe not as outwardly accepting of the far right, but is likely to uh, implement austerity or be just as vicious in damaging the working class in that way. And that in some way it can be uh, a negative to like reinforce kind of illusions that people might have in a Biden presidency being the answer to all this. Uh, like, what would you make of that? And, and how do you really, like, in, in a material way, kind of make that, like, nuanced position that, yes, we think he's a more favorable choice to Trump, but at the same time, there's still a lot of issues that we need to confront? That's a that's a really good question. And I, I think in many ways, there will be a significant difference. And then in many ways, there, there will, like you said, there will not be a significant difference, right? It's Biden is, like Ty said, a capitalist candidate through and through, um, and the the small concessions that he might make to the working classes will most likely be very, um, very small. What's crucial for us as socialists, thinking about, you know, really trying to create real political independence from the Democrats um, and and break from the, from the two-party system, mm-hmm. is that there is a real difference when there is, when the Democrats are sort of the opposition party against someone like Trump and when they're in power. Over the past four years, we've had Trump um, and um, and a Republican Senate. There is this real pressure to uh, to sort of like fall in line behind the Democrats as the you know quote unquote opposition party, even though they don't act like an opposition party. They um, really just capitulate to Republicans, as you we we like saw most recently when Amy Coney Barrett, really ultra conservative Supreme Court nominee uh, nominee, was was just pushed through and confirmed, and many high ranking Democrats um, just completely let it happen. Diane Feinstein, who's a Democratic senator from California on the Judiciary Committee, said it was one of the best confirmation that. hearings she'd been to. <laughs> and yeah. um, okay. thanked to Lindsey Graham, who's this, you know, awful Republican for uh, for for the hearing and like gave him a hug afterwards. I mean, they 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 are not an opposition party, mm-hmm. but they can sort of fool people into thinking that they are an opposition party. And I, I think I'm gonna steal this language from Ty, who's I, I heard say this before, but the the Trump and the Republicans in power can it can sort of act as like a, a glue behind, you know, all of these like forces within the Democratic Party, which shouldn't be in a party together, all these contradictions, like staying staying put for a little while and i think the 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 hope is that um a lot of those illusions start to break down once you have the democrats in power i think there is a a definitely a like like a possibility the democrats actually take back the senate as well as the presidency and then can control um both the congress in both in both houses and in in, um in the house and the senate and also the presidency there's a real right like a real hope from <laughs> most people that, you know, okay, now, now there's no excuse for the Democrats not to do anything, not to pass these things that we need, not to pass things like a Green New Deal or Medicare for all. Um, but we know that, that, that they won't without significant pressure. Um, and so I think you can start to like really see the divisions within, within the Democratic Party when they are in power. And, and from that, there's, there's a more ground to organize a real break from them. And I would just add that, you know, Trump's voting base, the Republican Party's voting base, um, makes them far more immune, <laughs> to put it that way, from to mass pressure. Um, and so it's not, you know, most working class people, they look at the situation, for instance, of the, the Black Lives Matter uprising. And it's not like they see the Democratic Party or figures like Joe Biden 
uh, who, you know, as Manya outlined, is responsible for the 1994 crime bill. Mm-hmm. Black people, uh, more conscious politic, uh, political people in this, under, in this country understand, you know, he is no ally of the Black Lives Matter movement. The Democratic Party in general is not seen as a reliable ally of the Black Lives Matter movement. But they are not seen, and I think this is correct, in the same light as Trump and the Republicans, who you know, openly embrace the most reactionary elements of law enforcement, who, you know, when vigilante groups um, uh, patrolled the streets of, uh, patrolled the streets against the Black Lives Matter movement, when they, when, you know, uh, that young, uh, unfortunate uh, right-wing kid, Kyle Rickner, shot down two Black Lives Matter protesters in Milwaukee in the protests earlier this summer, you know, the Republican Party, um, big sections of it, embraced that, defended the defended these vigilantes uh, killing uh, uh, activists. And so there is it versus in the city, in, in all the major cities of this country that saw this huge uprising, the Democratic Party politicians that run these cities were compelled because of the pressure of their voting base to make quite far-reaching promises to dismantle uh, the institutional racism embedded in, in U.S. capitalism. I mean, they didn't say capitalism for the most part, embedded in U.S. Uh, uh, but they, they would make quite far-reaching things. In Minneapolis, they passed a resolution quoting Angela Davis and some of them talking about abolition of the police um, under pressure from the movement. In Seattle, a majority of the city council vote, or, uh, committed, pledged to cut the police budget by 50%. Now, they're backsliding on this and they're producing tremendous frustration and anger amongst the activists. But there is a reality to because of their voting base, because of the social base that they rely on for their power, um, they are more susceptible to mass pressure. Um, it is a more favorable environment in that sense for the working class to be able to use that leverage um, uh, to press forward with concessions. Um, that's not gonna make it easy and we shouldn't foster for one second any illusions that that's going to be done for us. It will take continued mobilizations, continued mass pressure, and fundamentally it's going to take the threat um, uh, that is implicit, I think, in Bernie's campaign, that is implicit in the direction that DSA is going, the threat of a break from the Democratic Party, of building a political alternative. And the more explicit we are, the bigger the left um, uh, can get toward moving toward that goal, the more concrete developments we can for building an independent working class party, actually the more concessions we can get out of the Democratic Party as they strive to um, consolidate the, the, their increasingly polarized and fragmenting social base. Yeah, so you just mentioned there um, on the need to like break away from this two-party system or kind of etch out a space for the working class, um, like an independent space somewhere for them to um, exercise their like power or influence in society some have argued that the best route to this is by forcing an eventual break with the democratic party in the form of the dirty break strategy that you mentioned earlier um but to continue operating through the party structures as things stand what do you make of this and what do you consider the best way forward for the left and also is this altered or changed uh, if biden does assume the presidency yeah i think it's there's a really um healthy and positive and forward-moving debate in DSA and on the left about how exactly to organize a break with the Democratic Party, how to organize and prepare the ground for a new mass uh, workers' party. In some ways, you know, I've been 
uh, on the organized revolutionary left for over 20 years and advocating for the idea of a mass workers party um, um, every election cycle. And it is a more uh, live and widespread and living discussion um, than it's ever been. I think, you know, probably any time since, you know, the 60s, 70s um, era. The idea of the dirty break is that basically taking empirically, look what, how advanced uh, the left has been through Sanders campaigns or AOC's campaigns using the Democratic Party ballot line. Um, and how do we prepare the ground uh, to use these uh, campaigns to, to, to advance the idea of a break? And I think, unfortunately, many in DSA, um, most, most of the leadership who formally embraced dirty break, uh, as we say, put the emphasis on the dirty. They sort of say, well, you know, one day in the hazy future, we'll be ready for the break part. But for the time being, you know, we're making gains running on the Democratic Party ticket. Um, and let's, um, you know, keep doing that until the forces are matured. But there's no coherent campaigning plan to, to do exactly that. And I think that's where our caucus reform the revolution um, does have quite a, a sharp difference with most of the leadership of, of DSA and where we would say we put the emphasis on the break that wherever possible, wherever it's not a, a structural disadvantage, we should run DSA candidates as an independent on the independent ballot line on our own ballot line. Mm -hmm. um, we do accept though there because of the you know, really um, reactionary uh, legal framework of election law in the U.S. that has really enshrined the two-party system into the law. It's 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 interesting. It's very different in some ways than um, than most of the European models. The the question of who gets to be a Democratic Party candidate, for example, is not in most states decided by the formal structures of the Democratic Party. Um, the primary uh, uh, battles that where voters get to decide they can vote in the Republican Party in most states or they can vote in the Democratic Party, but it's not regulated by the party itself. It's regulated by the state, by the government. And so in some ways, the, the primary system, the system of deciding who the candidate um, who takes the Democratic nomination in a given race for Congress or Senate or the presidency is a state regulated process, not regulated by the private party institutions. Um, and in that sense, it, it enshrines the two-party system, but it also provides opportunities um, to use that. So in New York, for instance, I would, I would not say that a, if whoever wins uh, the Democratic Party primary in New York basically is a shoe-in in the general election, given how uncompetitive mm. the Democrats are, I mean, the Republicans are. Um, so I agree uh, with uh, our comrades in New York who say, AOC and others should use the Democratic Party, run in the Democratic Party primaries. But where I disagree is I think they should explicitly link that toward the goal of building their own ballot line. And actually New York has laws that also allow you to run on two ballot lines at once. It's complicated and weird, but um, so for instance, the Working Families Party will endorse some candidates who will run on both the Working Families Party ballot line and the Democrats vote ballot line but when voters go to the polls, they can vote for um, uh, whichever ballot line they, they identify with. So if DSA started its own socialist party ballot line, um, people could go to the polls 
and vote for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the socialist ticket um, and register their support there. Um, but she wouldn't have to take herself out of the Democratic Party primary, which is in reality the real election. So I think it's correct to have a nuanced approach. We don't agree with others on the um, far left, some of the sectarian organizations who just sort of in a general propagandistic sense talk about the need for a workers party and sort of, you know, um, blanket criticize any attempt to use the Democratic Party ballot line. There are cases where it is advantageous and where we would agree with the left doing that, but that has to be tied to a clear coherent strategy, not in the distant hazy future, but in, in here and now to advance the goal of building our own independent force. Um, to prepare the ground for DSA itself to relaunch itself as a democratic socialist party um, in the period ahead. Perfect. Do you want to bid on that, Mania? Yeah, I'll just um, I'll just add that Ty ended on this. I think DSA can be sort of the the embryo for this for a, a democratic socialist party. Um, I think you know DSA with seventy five thousand members is you know still pretty small, all things considered, um, in the U.S. We would want a, you know, a third party, a socialist party in, in the millions. We're a large force, a small large force currently, and um, I think can be the sort of the embryo for that. And then the other thing I'll add is just that I think when we, when we talk about, you know, building a socialist party or building a, a third party, I think in the U.S., our um, our understanding of political parties is just really dominated by what the Republicans and the Democrats are, which is a is a different understanding than we would have for what we would be building with a socialist party. Building a party uh, membership run party that has real control over you know officials, uh, elected officials, uh, socialist officials who we uh, who we elect and we and who we run, who has uh, a membership run party that has real say and control uh, over uh, the platform um, that you know that officials are expected to run on um, the socialist platform, controlled by by members themselves and and not um, corporate interests or big money whatsoever. That's really rooted in um, in the working class and in working class institutions. Um, and that also does more than just run candidates, right? That the electoral piece is really important, but that like the actual like organizing um, on the ground in, you know, really organizing uh, alongside unions, organizing uh, in workplaces, organizing mass actions on the streets, that that is just like just as important for a, like a, a new socialist party. Yeah, and I think that's often underplayed i think the electoral aspect uh for looking in anyway um is sometimes proposed as like the be all and end all for this and i think that takes place for ourselves too and it's in ireland and it's a, a balance a balance to walk in terms of focusing your effort, your energy on elections and then also building in workplaces and communities um yeah so Due to the pandemic, a rec record number of people have cast their votes by post and commentators have noted that it's unlikely that the result would be declared on election night, which in some years has been kind of a tradition to call it, uh, to announce the winner on the election night. And Trump himself has kind of cast aspersions on this process and mentioned that he may reject the result by arguing mail-in votes can't be relied upon uh, to give like the real result. What do you both make of this and, and what could be done in this instance? Is it kind of um, just like a bit of catastrophizing or is this a genuine, a genuine possibility? I think it is a, a genuine possibility. Like there, there have been um, quite real voter suppression attempts mm. 
many times successful, even just over this election cycle. But I mean, Republicans have been gerrymandering and really suppressing um, voting rights uh, for for years. And so it's that's that's not new. But I think it's it's been Trump has been really quite explicitly playing into it. There have been like more than 350 election related lawsuits at state and federal courts, most of which are about mail-in ballots and counting ballots. In some states, there have been lawsuits that have have said that even ballot like mail-in ballots that are postmarked by election day, if they're received afterwards, cannot be counted. And you know, this is in the midst of also a crisis with our with our uh, postal service, which has been completely um, underfunded, especially with Trump's postmaster general, a really right wing appointee. So I think they, there are actually really real feel, uh, fears here, and I think it's quite clear why why Trump is doing this. I think we can like see his his playbook as uh, you know pushing forward these voter suppression me- measures, also really trying to activate like a lot of racist intimidation by his base of these sort of like right-wing vigilantes, m- militias trying to like do racist intimidation at polls. I mean, we're also seeing like, and this isn't just Trump, this is um, just how the, the nature of voter suppression in, in the US right now, but even for early early voting um, at, uh, for both ballot boxes and, and um, and, and voting booths, there have been like incredibly long lines. And that's not that's not out of the ordinary. And this is both in Republican controlled areas, but also in in states like New York, um, which is and, and places like New York City, which is completely Democratic controlled. Uh, yeah, so I think Trump is is trying to use all this in order to make sure that the, the vote is really close on an election night and then use sort of the Republican control over state election officials in different states. Um, and then ultimately, if needed, use the, the Supreme Court, which is now has an ultra conservative majority of, of six Republican appointed nominees versus three Democrat appointed nominees on the Supreme Court mm-hmm. to to turn the election in his favor um, to like uh, potentially stop counting ballots. I mean, this is what happened in, in 2000 when it was Al Gore versus Bush and the Supreme Court stepped in to stop counting ballots in Florida. And if they had been allowed to have been counted, um, it, the election would have gone to, to Gore. And so, I, yeah, so I do think this, you know, this is a, a real concern. I think signs are pointing to that. To actually, might this might be obsolete. It, it might be a, a landslide by Biden on election night. Uh, but I still think that, like, this is something that the left and in particular socialists should be at the forefront of preparing for. I think what's we've seen from the Democrats and from Biden in particular is a similar strategy to what they did in 2000, which is to actively discourage people from going in the streets. Biden has made that really clear mm-hmm. in a lot of the debates and relying on just sort of the ruling class institutions, relying on the media, and then also relying on like legal challenges and legal battles, um, which we, we know uh, likely won't work. We think should be done in this instance is, uh, you know, if, if, it is, if it is clear on November 3rd that Trump is trying to steal the election, that we need mass actions and mass protests by the working class and uh, militant workplace actions as well. Uh, strike actions across the country and civil disobedience um, in order to uh, to stop this from happening. And unfortunately in DSA, our national political committee, which is our, our, our national leadership is not mm-hmm. giving a real lead in terms of organizing these protests. Okay. Um, and so we've, uh, in Seattle, we've our caucus has helped lead uh, both like regional coordination um, among DSA chapters to, to start preparing for this and, and, and has helped uh, spearhead this um, action assembly we're having in, in a few days to bring together socialists, but other left organizations and left groups in Seattle as well. 
um, to start really laying the groundwork, preparing our demands and, and, and preparing our strategy for what happens if, if it is clear that Trump is stealing the election on November 3rd. I'll just um, add if I can, mm -hmm. I think it is quite incredible, um, despite Biden leading in the polls, millions and millions of working class people um, fear that Trump will try and steal it. And I think because there's credible threats as, as Mania outlined, um, because there is the experience of Trump winning last time, despite the polls showing um, Clinton in the lead. Um, and that was against the background of quite uh, coordinated voter suppression efforts by the Republican party um, in particular uh, in 2016. And despite, as Mania mentioned, Trump losing the popular vote by 3 million people. And, um, and what, you know, just as an indication of the scale of, of anger, a number of labor councils and labor unions across the country have passed resolutions saying, if Trump tries to steal the election, they are going to call for a general strike. And in the US context, that is an absolutely incredible statement that there's never been you know, a nationwide general strike um, in all of US history. And that's sort of been, you know, something that only the very far left groups ever uh, talk about uh, mm -hmm. in response to political events. But um, the idea of, of the general strike has, it's, it's cropped up more and more in the last few years um, around the revitalization of labor movement and figures like Sarah Nelson, who's the head of the, um, um, uh, uh, flight attendants union nationally has continuously been saying, we need to reclaim the strike, um, the idea of a general strike um, she's put forward um, in response to Trump on other issues. So the fact that this idea is, is beginning to take off, I don't wanna exaggerate it. It's still some of the smaller, more left-wing unions and the, the labor councils and some of the more left-wing cities that have passed resolutions to this effect. But I think Mania is absolutely right that if, um, if Trump did try and do this, the mood is such that we would see a semi-spontaneous character in some places and a more organized way in other areas. I think mass work stoppages um, across the country that would uh, begin to assume the character of a, of a, um, of a mass political strike wave um, across the country. And I think it's uh, uh, incumbent on DSA and uh, organized socialists to prepare the ground to, to give that an organized expression as much as possible, especially given the threat um, of Trump's right-wing militia base of that is being mobilized to the polls. I think uh, uncoordinated protests where the labor movement was not at the yeah. forefront would have a danger of real violent clashes. And that's an atmosphere under which, you know, the Supreme Court could step in um, uh, amidst, you know, quote unquote chaos uh, in the streets mm -hmm. and uh, uh, put the election in Trump's favor. So mass protests, but organized, stewarded, prepared with clear demands um, is crucial. And I think the work that uh, uh, our comrades have done in um, Seattle to prepare the ground for that, as Mania outlined, and in a number of other cities um, is really exemplary. Yeah, it seems an, an extremely encouraging response to what is like a, a daunting kind of situation, but also a chance for, I think, the like working class or, or collective unions and things like that to exercise their power and kind of untangle that illusion in the courts coming in and fixing things especially given uh, what Manya touched on the failure of them to do so uh, in 2000 with uh, Gore and Bush. It was mentioned earlier, just in terms of the 
uh, low turnout. And I think low turnout has been a recurring phenomenon in US elections. I think the mm-hmm. last one was around 55% or something like that. And it always seems to be in that range, which is just massive given the, the population. Uh, I don't think it's uns- or surprising given the, the conditions or uh, the options offered in the past. But what like causes this phenomenon and given the mail-in votes or the what's perceived as being like a, a quite important vote uh, do you expect this to continue for this election or are there early signs showing otherwise i think some of the early indicators are that we're going to see quite a significant turnout now mm-hmm. you know that's by u.s standards so you know anything north of 60 percent would be really historic in, in modern u.s history yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so you know that's is what it is but i think yes uh, by us stand by the standards of the last several decades um we could see potentially a historic turnout already um texas of all places is leading the country in um early voting and it's exactly a response. The Republicans uh, there have, you know, done a lot to make it very difficult to, to vote on voting day. They've limited the number of like um, drop boxes where you can physically deliver your ballots um, to only one per county. And so, for instance, in the county that Houston is based off of, that's one drop box for over four million people. So you can imagine people's fears of they're going to show up on election day to try and drop their ballots into the drop box and be competing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of other, it's, it's a disaster. And so people are in response, mailing their votes in early. And what we've seen in Texas, just to give that example, is mm. already more people have voted early than the total turnout of a 2016 election. So we are, right. it's clear in Texas anyway, um, that there's going to be a, a, a historic turnout. Here in Washington State and in Oregon, where um, we've actually had mail-in ballot, mail-in balloting for much of the country is a relatively new phenomenon, or it was a you know not very widely used uh, uh, voting method. But here in Washington, Oregon, there's only been mail-in balloting. That's the only way to uh, to, to to vote um, for um, a couple decades now. And what we're also seeing here is the number of people who are mailing their vote in early. Uh, is bigger than it's ever been. So, you know, it's a little bit, um, I don't know what the total uh, turnout will be, but I, I would not be surprised if it is, you know, uh, significantly north of 60%, which would be, you know, higher than the modern day record of the 20, 2008 elections. Um, and, um, and we'll see, you know, both bases are both the Republican and Democratic bases are really motivated to turn out this time. Um, but I think there is a chance, despite everything we said about the threat of Trump trying to steal the election, there's a chance that in response to that, um, that we're, we will see a landslide for Joe Biden um, mm. as a result for the, of, the, of the huge turnout. Young people, for instance, are voting in record numbers. That's clear. Yeah, it's certainly interesting times. And uh, I'm we have to just wait and see how that turns out so then last last but not least uh how will you be spending election night and what do you both think we're in for are we looking at an easy biden victory delayed biden victory with resistance from trump or the shocking trump victory what are you thinking who wants to go first you go ahead man yeah <laughs> uh, you go first 
I'll go out on a limb. I think despite all of the, uh, I think, absolutely correct preparations for Mm -hmm. a, you know, close election in which Trump would try and steal it, that's still absolutely in the cards as possible. But um, for all the reasons I was just saying about all the the, the numbers we're seeing in this last uh, few days in particular of early voting numbers, I think there's a good chance that even on election night, we're going to see a landslide. I mean, okay. usually mail-in ballot, they talk about a blue wave with mail-in voting where um, it tends to trend left um, uh, at, as uh, votes are counted. And the reason is, is because most young people, most working class people, you know, they vote very late, you know, they mm-hmm. procrastinate, they got busy lives, they don't think about it, but then voting day comes around and they're like, oh crap, and they, you know, run to the mailbox and, and deliver their mail. Uh, and that trends uh, things left. But I think this election, we may actually see a, a, a reverse of that because so many uh, young people, so many uh, folks who are want to get Trump out are worried, mm-hmm. will their vote even be counted? <laughs> Uh, if they mail it in late. Um, so I think we might, uh, the, so there's been a tremendous push um, on the Democratic side, on the anti-Trump side to vote early. And we may see sort of a reverse of that historic trend of late voters uh, trending left, trending Democratic uh, in this election. But that's just me going out on a limb. I don't have a lot of evidence for that. That's just kind of trying to read the tea leaves best I can. Right, so Taya said, "Bet the house on Biden." <laughs> <laughs> I'm clicking into Paddy Power right now to put the money on. <laughs> and yourself, Manya, what do you think? I'm a little less sure than Ty, um, but I wish I was there. I, um, <laughs> I'm torn. I don't know. I think it's a definite possibility that that it is a landslide for Biden, and that, that would make our our next week a lot easier. Uh, I do think it's it's quite a possibility that it is contested. And, or at least that it's, uh, yeah, that it's extremely close on election night, that a lot of ballots aren't counted. And then, um, and then Trump tries to steal it. And we see a lot of, yeah, spontaneous or organized mass actions next week. So we'll see. Time will tell on that front. It's uh, one to watch anyway. But uh, I think that'll, that'll do us there. We covered a lot of ground. So I'll just say thanks a million to Manya and Ty for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was great. Thanks no for problem having us. at all. Our pleasure. We'll have to get you back after the uh, fallout. <laughs> We'd love that. <laughs> all right. I think we can wrap things up there. Thanks a million to everyone for listening. As mentioned before, our Patreon will be linked in the episode description, and we appreciate any and all support. You can help it as well by spreading the podcast around to your friends or anyone who might be interested, and also by leaving us a positive rating on wherever you get your podcast. Thanks a million for listening. I'll be back soon. Goodbye. You wake up and your head's fucked. You stick your trousers on and you lost bit of makeup. 